Hello everyone, my name is Matt Phelan. Welcome to the latest uh, episode of uh, Happiness and Humans. I am here with my amazing guest, Gabe Barrett. How are you, Gabe? I'm very well, thanks, Matt. Delighted to be here. Before Gabe introduced himself, Gabe, um, I asked Gabe um, off air uh, if he had any questions. His number one question was, "How? Do I, what's my view on swearing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro-swearing, but why, why did you ask that question, Gabe, out of interest? Uh, because I am pro-swearing as well when used appropriately and effectively. Uh, but sometimes it's just the right word. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this slightly links us to the fact that we both, uh, my my mum is from County Clare and Gabe is uh, from County Clare in the tiniest, tiniest little small area. So I don't know if we can, can we blame this on our parents, Gabe? Or is that is that a cop out? <laughs> I think that's a cop out. I think we have to own that one for ourselves. We do, don't we? So um, Gabe, please, please, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Matt. So I am Gabe Barrett. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Otter Intelligence, which is a consultancy focused on building high trust, high performance teams, especially in the context of hybrid working. Brilliant. And we know each other because not only are we from the same county, we're from probably within a couple of miles of each other in the middle of nowhere, yeah. Ireland. Yeah. I, I can't even remember when we met about how that how that popped up. I think I mentioned it because because obviously you have an Irish accent, and I mentioned it, and then it got narrower and narrower. Which is, have you done um, have you done twenty three and me, Gabe? No, I haven't. Would you consider something like that? I think it would be fascinating. We should because um, I've got mine. And ba long story short, um, for, for everyone listening, I'm not a salesperson for twenty three and me, but. Um, some people hate it, some people like it, but it would then um, we would be able to find out if we're related. So yeah, let's find out we're actually cousins. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, Gabe, first question we have to ask it all our guests, which is the most important question in the world, which is uh, what makes you happy? What makes me happy? A lot of things make me happy, and it's usually the simplest things that make me happy and experiences. But probably the time I'm happiest is on a campsite with my friends and family and the dog around a campfire, glass of good whiskey in hand and just shooting the breeze, pretending the outside world doesn't exist and enjoying time. I love that. That is, of all the people I've asked, that's one of the most visual images, I think. Are you a visual person, Gabe? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Which I find fascinating because that that's, I don't think that's the stereotype that people, because you've got, um a real insight into data and understanding of data i i reckon there's a stereotype that data people are not necessarily visual and uh, we're going to come back to that um so gabe we're going to kick off with we were having a super interesting conversation um about the workplace and sarah, sarah everend um mm -hmm. for those that don't know sarah everend um she was the the poor girl that was murdered on clapham common and we were having um, a sort of a, a work discussion around the implications of gender differences in the workplace. And we were talking about the one positive that has come out of, the, of that is people have shared their stories of uncomfortable situations that they've been in. Um, and I think on all sides of this whole gender conversation, out of it has come some serious conversations that needed to be had. And in the middle of that, debate Gabe you shared your story which I think blew everyone's mind and I think the reason it blew everyone's mind just to share back with you is 
it gave a different perspective to the to the male female conversation and i think when someone can give a different perspective that just adds a t that adds to everyone so um gabe i just thought it'd be useful for you to, sh to share that story sure matt thank you so the reason why i have a different perspective on that is because i'm a trans guy i'm a trans man so i've experienced the world being seen as both female and male so i've experienced both and i've been both in group and out group in both of those categories too and the story i think i told was the first time i ever really experienced being being read as male and that was frightening for the other person I was on a train to the West Country, going camping actually. I was going to meet up with my friends. We were going camping fairly late in the evening. And there was a young woman, probably roughly the same age as I was, early 20s, on her own on the train, looked a little bit on edge and had a dog with her. And I went to strike up a conversation with her because she was on her own. She looked like maybe things weren't great. And she had a really frightened reaction to me coming into even just the, the outskirts of her personal space. Yeah. And that was really upsetting for me. It was really upsetting because previously to that, I had been the person on the train looking scared, not exactly sure what was going to happen, and found comfort and security and safety in community with other people. So to be on the outside of that, to be inflicting that completely unintentionally, but intention is not really what matters. It's the outcome is, is what matters. And what it made me realize is how many boys and young men are being raised, not understanding the impact of them being in the space of others. Mm -hmm. And lots of people will say, Oh, you know, it's you know, it's not up to us, it's not our fault, not all men. That's not really the point. The point is understanding the impact you have on other people. And have we normalized boys and men not appreciating that and not understanding that, having never been on the other side of it? And it's really what I think gets to the heart of belonging. If you've always felt included, if you've always felt like you belonged in your communities as you grew up, you don't know what it's like to not belong. And you can you can empathize to a degree, but we all normalize the way we grow up. I mean, how many times have you had a conversation about, oh, I thought that was normal and, you know, something your family did or something your parents did. And you assume it's normal because it's the only experience you have. And then you talk to other people and you go, oh, okay, actually, no, that's a bit weird that they always yeah. do that. So that sense of belonging is so important and it's so powerful to have it. But if you've never not had it, you don't appreciate mm. how important it is and how meaningful it is and what it's like to be on the outside. I think, I, I think that's it's such a powerful point on belonging, isn't it? Because when people talk about diversity and inclusion, belonging is, is talked about a lot, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Without stories, it's hard to to feel what that actually, if you it, it feel whether that's what that feeling could be like. As you say, you can empathize, but through stories, 
a story is so powerful because when you hear it like that you could as a as a listener you can connect it then i'm immediately thinking about my children and how and, and how i can help them and so on and so on but mm -hmm. uh, when we when i asked you that question i didn't think we were going to end up on a belonging conversation which is for anyone um, and we'll get to building teams i mean surely that's it's one of the basics of a team isn't it that you feel like you belong in a team is that is would you agree with that gabe is that something leaders need to be thinking about absolutely so belonging is one of the most fundamental human needs after safety food after the physical that sense of feeling psychologically safe feeling like you belong feeling like if you make a mistake and you screw up you're not going to be cast out of your community and your society and the reason i think it's so relevant for work is because a it's such a large part of our lives so to spend that much of your waking time in an environment where you don't feel like you belong is utterly draining and demoralizing you're not going to do your best work because you're going to be worried you're going to be spending too much mental time and energy worrying about making sure that you can stay yeah not thinking about what's the next innovative idea i could do what's the calculated risk we could take you don't want to take those risks because it's more important to stay safe and to feel like you belong the other part i think is very interesting is go back to the beginning of the industrial age and companies businesses were very much a part of the community and as humans, we can, we're best with what, 75 to 150 relationships. Small, number, number. Yeah, small, smallish groups of people. And companies were a fundamental part of their community. Fast forward a couple of hundred years, that had started to completely disintegrate and companies were just profit-making machines. Now I think the pendulum is sw swinging back in another direction to say, actually, companies are part of their communities, however local or global that might be. And for however long people stay at a company, why wouldn't you want to create a company that has a sense of community and belonging? Mm. You can make the business case for it, which I know you do extensively with uh, the happiness index, but you can make the business case for it that mm. happy people are more productive you can make the moral case for it but you can also make the very selfish case for it of where do i want to be what kind of environment do i want to be in do i want to be in a place where i feel safe which is not the same as comfortable but where i feel safe to try new things where i feel safe i just want to capture that point there's a really big point there isn't there safe is not the same as comfortable Safe is not the same as comfortable. And I think that's something that gets missed a lot when we talk about creating safe spaces, which are very important, but safe does not mean comfortable. In fact, you can only be uncomfortable. You can only experience discomfort in a safe place and you can only grow through discomfort. Growth never comes from being in a comfortable place. Growth doesn't come from massive point gabe i've not really thought about before but do you is that something you think about regularly uh, the, trying to differentiate comfort 
that yeah those two points is that something you think about it is I, because i think it's it goes to the fundamental point of a high performance and high trust team so if you can create a space where people can feel uncomfortable where they can do challenging things that's when you get to high performance if you just have safety and comfort you don't get massive progress because yeah. without friction without discomfort without a problem to solve there is no growth yeah. there is no development so creating those spaces i think are so important and i don't want to make massive sweeping statements about society because i think society is at a point of massive change actually and there's a generation of people coming through who are much more interested in the good they do for the world, the good they do for their communities. But there was definitely a point where we had gotten way too comfortable, where everything was about how fast and how easy can you do it. A lot of tech companies talk about reducing friction. So Amazon makes it so easy to go from, hmm, I wonder if I should get to it being delivered the next day, whatever it is. But that lack of friction has taken away the time for contemplation and the time for thinking about what needs to change, what needs to be better. So in a corporate context, the problems that companies are trying to solve moving forward are getting increasingly complex and they're increasingly questions about people. They're not about how can I make this widget 1% more efficiently in my manufacturing plant. It's how do I have a deeper relationship with my customers? How do I have longer relationships with my customers? How do I cross sell and upsell? They're relational people questions. Hmm. And those require the kinds of spaces where you can have open and frank and challenging conversations about what the right thing to do is because there's no objectively measurable answer to what's the right way in a lot of these business problems. It's what we think is the best way based on our experience and our knowledge of the customer. And if you don't know your customer, if you can't sit in their seat, if you can't walk in their shoes, then how are you going to serve them? Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to experience your customer's discomfort, not just in whatever their buying journey with you might be, but, but in their wider context, in the wider context of society. So if you're going to do that with your customers, you have to do that with your staff. You can't, yeah. you can't have a one-way trust with customers and not have it with your staff. Yeah. Because they're the people who are going to be solving the problems solving the customer's problems, serving the customer. So to create environments for them where they can flourish and thrive. And I'm not saying that it has to be everything for everyone. I actually think companies need to do the opposite. They need to be much more specific about what are the values that we have here in this company and attract the people who share those values. Because while you want different perspectives and you want different experiences, I think you very much want to have shared core values to be able to create that safety. So a question on that then, because there's a big there's a big point there, isn't there? Like you mentioned in and out groups before. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you create an environment that 
allows different personalities to thrive okay mm -hmm. um, but you don't accidentally create like a monoculture of the same person over and over again which for me that people talk about all the problems and, and and stuff with diversity and everything all the time but if you if we take a pure pure business sense that i just look at it on evolutionary terms that you can get away with a monoculture whilst everything's staying the same but the minute something changes and you need to adapt if you've got all the same people thinking the same things you're not going to have that person who goes who puts their hands up and says we need to change this because they've mm -hmm. got a different background or perspective how do you how do you create a culture that ha doesn't have in and out groups um and so on i mean that's really difficult isn't it or do you just have to have an in-group it's I, I know a lot of HR directors that are listening to this that, that are challenged, that are struggling with that point that strong values can create a monoculture. But any thoughts mm -hmm. on that, Gabe? So I think it's almost impossible to create any kind of large organization without in and out groups. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try and minimize it as much as possible, but they're a natural evolution of the human condition what you want to do is push the boundary of that in-group as far out as you can so as many yeah. people as possible feel part of the in-group that that creation of in and out groups there's no getting away from it it's how we think about our families you know there's our family that's the in-group and then there's everybody outside that family yeah how you treat others i think is a completely separate question but you're going to have these in and out groups you just want it to be as big as possible Secondly, I would say there is absolutely no single answer for this, and it very much depends on the nature of the company. Because if you are a company in a stable industry where what you need to serve your customers best is repeatable quality, then you're going to want a certain type of person who does the thing the right way every time. Yeah. If you bring in people who think differently, people who see things from a different perspective, it's not necessarily going to help because they're going to want to change things. Yep. The organization doesn't have at that point in time a burning platform to drive that change. So you're just gonna end up making loads of people miserable. And this is why I think it's so important that companies hire for the right values. They don't hire people just because, oh, everybody's got data scientists these days, so we're gonna go hire a data scientist. Yeah. You don't, if you don't have a really, and that's just a, a, a small concrete example, but if you don't have a really clear purpose behind why you're taking that action, the person you bring in is going to be miserable because they're not going to see why they're doing what they're doing. They're not going to be able to have purpose, which is one of the major drivers of happiness the organization's not going to be happy because they're going to be getting constantly bombarded with you know we need to change this we need to change that so there are companies for whom steady state right now is what they need at some point in the future they're going to have to go through some pain i'm not sure how early though you can head off that pain just by bringing in other people yeah. however most companies i think are in industries and markets where change is a constant. Yeah. And one of the things that's come out of lockdown for me and the experience that we've all gone through over the last 18 months is how outdated our 
organizational design principles are, we still very much have the hierarchical structure. So somebody says, what's your org structure look like? And everybody brings out their organograms and it's got one box at the top and it splits down as it goes on. But that's not how these problems are going to be solved. Yeah, Those aren't the structures that are going to solve the problems that we have. Those are structures that work when the person at the top knows the answer and the people at the bottom do the work. Yeah. So it's a very industrial age, um, Taylor-esque, you know, principles of management, scientific principles of management way of looking at things, which is completely dehumanizing. Totally. And I think it doesn't work for either party in that particular setup. So you might think, oh, well, the person at the top, usually a white guy, you know, has the power, has the influence, what's going to be their motivation to change? For a start, it's really lonely being in the single box at the top, very, yes. very lonely, unnecessarily stressful when you're expected to have all the answers, when actually your team has all the answers. So I think we're getting this newer generation of senior executives and leaders getting to those positions in the organizations who are saying, that's not how I want to lead. Yeah. My job is not to have the answer to every question. Yeah. Because if I get hit by a bus, then we're screwed. Yeah. It can feel nice to be needed for a while. Which goes back to the belonging point, doesn't it? It's, it's, yeah. It must be linked to that. I, I definitely think it's linked to that. It's not, it's nice to be needed, but that's very conditional belonging. It's you belong as long as you have utility, as long as you're useful to us, we keep you as opposed to you are inherently and intrinsically a valuable person. Yeah. What's the best way to use your skills within this context? Yeah. Cause one is just a, like an economic exchange, isn't it? Absolutely. You, you do this. Whereas the other one is more about what you what you bring as a wider human being. And, and we know from research that economic exchange of labor has very rapidly decreasing marginal gains for knowledge work. So when you're talking about manual labor and manual work, you can incentivize, you can economically incentivize more labor to a point. People can expend more physical energy it is the opposite for knowledge work. Yep. The more you economically, either you stick or carrot in an economic sense, and you're trying to use that to stimulate performance, it actually backfires. Because if you're thinking, oh God, I have to do this, or I'm not gonna be able to make my mortgage payment, yep. your creativity is gone. As soon as you go into that stress-driven response, again, we know from research that any kind of higher thinking, higher executive thinking goes out the window. So yep. you fall back on what's you know what's known. So you do things exactly the way you did them before because yep. it's safe. And again, you don't get creativity, you don't get innovation, you don't get progress. Yeah. Whereas purpose-driven companies, and I think we're seeing more and more of these companies come out, companies that are able to drive through purpose don't have the way they do things as being their identifying characteristic. Their identifying characteristic is their purpose. It's what they're trying to do. And so yeah. you can have more agility to go back to the original question. What you want is, a, is an organization that's able to adapt and flex like an organism 
rather than a machine. Totally. Machines were the great analogy for the workforce 100 years ago. The organism now is the way you need to think about an enterprise. It has to be able to adapt and collaborate in organic and non-structured ways, which is slightly scary, right? For a lot of people, that's scary because it's not rules-based. It's not bound by boxes. It requires risk, and that's scary. Yeah. I have a lot of empathy for organizations that are struggling to go through this because it is a very scary step to take. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's scariest at the top, actually. I think it's executives, and that's why executive coaching is part of my practice because yeah. the executives at the top who probably feel like they have the most to lose but also have the most to gain in terms of quality of life and just general well-being. Yeah. And, and just on the point on AI and everything and so on, is that, and the organism and all this kind of stuff and machines, mm. uh, I always think when AI is as 0.005% as good as the plants that are sitting behind you, I'll be impressed. <laughs> and even and even a, a good friend of mine, Chris Walker, he, he's, he's a he's he's a gardener but he messaged me saying this uh a couple of weekends ago because uh, he started to listen to podcasts on it why why is it called ai when it's not genuine artificial intelligence why isn't it called sophisticated computing <laughs> and the simple answer to that is ai companies call it ai because there's a higher valuation <laughs> it is sophisticated computing we're nowhere near the ability of an organism of human beings and plants or whatever um, Gabe, just a, um, a technical question um, for HR directors in terms mm -hmm. of like, real practic practicality, um, uh, because it's Pride Month. Yes, it, it is. Um, and I feel like we should, from an awareness perspective, support Pride Month in terms of one particular question. If you're a HR director or your CEO and you're listening, or maybe even a colleague of someone that's transitioning, mm -hmm. Do you have any any advice for for anyone that wants to support someone uh, through that in 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 the workplace, Gabe? So I'll split my answer into two. The first is from from a kind of formal and policy and procedure perspective. There are some excellent groups that provide that help to organisations, organisations who want to change their policies to be more trans inclusive or who need to understand what they need to do from a legal perspective in order to, to help people through. So there are organizations like Mermaids who help companies do that. So that's the, the shall we say, the process answer. Yeah. The, the people answer is to be led by the person who is transitioning. This is not something that you do on a whim and it's not something that's done without a huge amount of research. Yeah. Often, in fact, the first time a trans person goes to talk to their GP, it will be the first time the GP has encountered this, and you end up explaining to the GP what they're supposed to do. Right. So I don't think very many trans people would transition in the workplace and expect their company to know exactly what to do from the get-go. So center it on the person. And not assume what their needs are. Not assume what it is that they want to have happen. Ask. Come to it from a position of respectful curiosity. Yeah. 
using, I would suggest many of the coaching techniques you'd use. So in a, in a situation, you'd say, what can I do for you today? Yeah. What is it you would like to achieve? Not, so I've done some research and we're going to relabel the bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, I, I understand the very strong desire to help. Yeah. And perhaps the desire to minimize discomfort. Yeah. But I would suggest really leaning into that discomfort. Yeah. And interrogating it and thinking, why is this an uncomfortable conversation? Yeah. There are probably going to be more uncomfortable conversations to have. So how can we prepare for those conversations? Yeah. But very much be led by the person who's doing it because no two trans people have the same experience. Yeah. Uh, there isn't the singular trans experience and you know these are the seven things you need to do this is a this is a complex multifaceted messy human being in front of you yeah who will have complicated simple who knows what their needs are you're only going to find them if you ask yeah and do okay but the happiness index we use freedom to be human right mm -hmm. what you're talking about is a very specific situation happening but mm -hmm. when you were talking, I was thinking, well, this, this, that way of thinking actually applies to every human being, doesn't it? So if we take maternity or paternity leave or whatever, it's the same, isn't it? No two mm -hmm. people that are going through pregnancy are going to experience it in the same way. Am I, by saying that, am I um, making transition, am I making it sound smaller than it is? Or is that an approach that should be universal? So I think it's an approach that should be universal. And I would say, I would say this. So there was, there was a time when if you had given me a time machine and said, you can go back and transition as, you know, as a kid and you can go through life as the person you feel you're supposed to be, I, I would have taken it probably until my late twenties. Wow. I'm thinking that because life was pretty tough. You know, you go through a lot of, extreme difficulties there's there's no getting around that but now i wouldn't change it for the world because the experiences i've had being trans have given me this superpower of being able to see the complexities of people and being able to empathize across a very diverse range of people i wouldn't lose that skill for the world yeah. so yes, i think it is to a greater or lesser extent, the right approach. You know, it's not minimizing somebody's transition to say, the way I treated you as a compassionate human being is how I should treat other people. Yeah. You know, if that's the learning that people take away from this, then that's amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's such, it's just, it's great on a human level, Gabe, this, but it's also practical, so thank you. Um, and next question, I don't know which which out of these questions is the hardest one, um, but is data scary? Question mark. <laughs> what do you mean by data? Well, you are you were a question with a question. Um, mm. I think I think that's where the question comes from, which yeah. is. It's almost people, the word data, I, I feel like it goes back to a bit like GCSE and your, and your school days and numbers and stuff like that. So. I suppose what I mean, most people when they're asking about data are thinking about the collection of all the information in the business and 
I know people that bury their head in the sand when they hear the word data. Uh, and mm -hmm. I know this is an absolute skill from from information officer roles and so on. So I suppose where do you start might be a better question, Gabe, which is why I suspect you were asking me what do you mean by data. Yeah, data as a word is just, it means too many things to too many people for it to, without context, be useful to the conversation. And you have to start with the problem you're trying to solve. What? Why are we trying to do data or big data or AI or pick any other term that you want to pull in? Data in and of itself is a neutral resource. It's, it's information. Where it becomes troublesome is when we put either excessive faith in the data or excessive faith in our gut. And we don't listen to data at all. Because I think you're right, when we go back to learning maths at school, numbers don't lie. Well, actually they do, and they can lie extraordinarily well. Yeah. So data is not neutral because it's been created by human systems, and human systems are inherently fallible. Yeah. So the data is not perfect. Uh, the data is often actually incredibly rubbish and needs a lot of effort to sift through to find what's important. The data is really comforting. I mean, if you can put it on a graph and put that into your PowerPoint deck that you're presenting to your board, that feels more robust. Mm -hmm. you no, know? it, it makes you seem more rational and evidence-based because look, I have this nice graph here and here's some more tables and some more graphs. Yeah. But that could be numbers that were made up not necessarily by you, but three steps before in the process. So you have to understand where the data is coming from, who is it coming from, why was it collected, what's happened to it since it's collected. The other thing I would say is you don't need a lot of data. What you need is the right data. Totally. So I've known organizations that have had dozens of KPIs. Well, that defeats the very definition of the word, which is key performance indicators. If you have dozens of key performance indicators, they're not key. You really need to focus on what's important at what level and to do what. Why are you collecting the data? Is it to understand what's happened in the past? Is it to influence a decision about the future? Those are the questions you need to ask, which are, hum again, they're human questions what are we trying to achieve here how are we going to do it what do we need to know in order to do that thing but numbers are comforting when you can put them on a graph so i'm a passionate believer in evidence-based decision making yeah you don't have evidence for what it is you're doing then you might as well flip a coin yeah. you know you're just taking a chance there yeah. needs to be that doesn't mean it has to be to the quality of, you know, a double blind clinical trial. If what you're trying to figure out is what color we should paint the walls, yeah. but there should be some form of evidence behind your decision-making. The key is not getting overwhelmed with too much data because leaving out data is a choice. It's a decision that you may have to answer for later. Yeah. And a lot of, organizations actually aren't that good at making decisions. Yeah. And the safest thing to do is run the decision up the flagpole, see what the boss says, come back down. 
And that, I think, goes back to psychological safety and a sense of belonging. Yeah. And those companies that are able to push decision-making down to where the decision actually needs to happen, they're the ones who are going to be agile, who are going to be flexible and responsive to changing markets, changing customer needs. Because you're getting rid of the time lag between... Yep. Somebody in a store noticing something, oh, this particular line of X is doing well, I'm going to stock three times that. Yeah. If you had to wait for that approval to go to your regional manager, to go to the country manager, to come back down, you might have missed your opportunity. Yeah. But it would be safe if you sent it up the pole. That's a safe decision. You're not going to get fired for asking your boss what you should do but it's not the right decision. I love how you connected it, Gabe. And final final question, um, building teams is your thing, right? Yes. Uh, it's a big part of what you're... Um, oh, by the way, I, one I'm gonna ask you to answer this one in one sentence because I want the second question answered more, but why have you called your business Otter Intelligence? Why Otter? I wanna know why. Why Otter? Uh, so there's, there's a double meaning to this. So otters are communal animals, very intelligent, use tools, who work together for a common good. Yeah. They're also just really cute. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And they will make a great mascot. Cool. I had to ask that because um, everyone who's listening wants to know that. So, but the, the main question is, can we use data to build better teams, Gabe? If it is in support of a human-centric management philosophy, then yes, absolutely. If it is instead of having messy and uncomfortable conversations, then no. Okay. And what advice have you got for people that, that need to have messy and uncomfortable conversations? My glib answer was about to be, oh, just get started, just have the first uncomfortable conversation but i think that does a disservice to the level of discomfort people feel yeah so i would suggest getting help and that can come in multiple forms there are some very good works by brene brown on this yeah. from the vulnerability point of view from an organizational psychology point of view adam grant writes about this and that can help ease you into that place of creating enough space for vulnerability, which allows for the uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. I think it should be a major part of a manager and a leader's job to create that environment. And as you will know in a test, you can measure attributes like that of a leader yeah so it can be a measurable part of their performance evaluation is how, to what extent they were able to create safety psychological safety and, and a sense of belonging that can be measured but it's a and the thing is this is a skill yes there are some people who have some natural talent for this but absolutely everybody can get better at this because it is a skill. You can get a coach, do an online learning program, hire me into your company, and you can learn how to have these conversations. 
the opening lines. That's probably the most difficult of any conversation. There are three or four different ones you can have in your tool bag to say, this gets the conversation started. Yeah. So you can learn this, you can practice this. You can try practicing it on your kids. It has mixed results. Yeah. <laughs> As we were discussing before about <laughs> telling a child that they're tired. It's yeah. like the worst thing. Um, Gabe, you've you have been an amazing guest and you have shared so much um of your career and your past to help us. What um what does the future look like? Like what's what what do you see? What do you see? What was what's your focus in the next year? So my focus for the next year is going to be specifically on hybrid teams because that is going to be a major pain point for organizations. Whether they decide we're not having hybrid teams, we are having hybrid teams, how they're having hybrid teams. I'm seeing too many companies coming out with statements of this is what we're going to do. Yeah. If they know, which is not to criticize the intellect of any of these organizations, but there is absolutely no way they can know what the right thing to do is right now. Yeah. The best way to approach this is to say, these are the things that are important to us. It could be spending time together as a team. It could be continuing to be innovative. It could be continuing to make money, whatever it is. Start with that. What's important to us? And here are some things we're going to try and measure and see what the impact is. Goes back to evidence-based. Why anybody thinks having three days every week in the office is going to continue to create a atmosphere of innovation in Apple, it's completely arbitrary. Yeah. And I think it indicates for whom that decision is being made. That decision is not being made for the team members. That decision is being made for the ease of the management structure. Yeah, totally. So you start at the team level and say, what do you need as a team? And let them decide what they're going to do for the first six months and measure it and see what works and what works you tell other people about and they can try and what doesn't work you tell other people about and you say this is what didn't work for us yeah. a lot of organizations don't like being at the vanguard of innovation and change that's why there's such a small percentage of early adopters in the yeah. change and transformation curve unfortunately for them they have no choice they have been thrown into this yeah hybrid working is here to stay it is not going away because people have started to reassess their priorities and also yeah. their power it was just normal what you did was you got a job you commuted into the office you did your job and you came home and very few people questioned that yeah and then everybody had to work from home not everybody but a large proportion of people had to work from home and went I can do this. I can do my job from home. So organizations are going to need to focus on their priorities and create spaces where people want to be rather than where people have to be. Yeah. So if you have an office that's open plan and full of desks, no one is going to want that. Yeah. Didn't want it before, really don't want it now because why would I go in to an open plan office to do emails and phone calls and video chats with people. When I can hear people on either side of me, that's miserable. I could just do that from home. People want to have shared experiences though. Totally. I, I don't know anyone who doesn't want some form of interaction. And that ranges from the real extroverts 
who have really suffered by not being around people, it's really affected them. They're desperate to see people. To the solid introverts who still want to have the occasional meeting with people for specific purposes. So organizations that can think about why do we want people together? What do they need in order for that to be the most rewarding experience we can create? They're the organizations that are going to do well. Okay, Barrett. I have learned so much from today. Thank you so much for coming on and just sharing with us just so much story and insight. It, it's been incredible, Gabe. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.